You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, and this morning we're going to be looking together at chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, and we'll be reading the first eight verses together. You'll find this on page 918 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of God. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Well, last time we considered the miracle of raising Tabitha from the dead. She was a disciple, you remember, who was full of good works and acts of charity. But she fell sick and she died. And they began to prepare her body for burial. When they summoned Peter, he came and prayed to Jesus, who raised her from the dead. It was a miracle, and she got up, and she presented herself alive to others, and many who heard of this miracle came to believe in the master who accomplished it. Raising her up was proof of what Jesus was able and willing to do. And against his power, we're learning that neither disease, nor devils, nor death is able to stand. John 11 He says, whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So there is a limit to death's power. It must bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. And Luke's going to follow the Apostle Peter this week north, 32 miles up the coast to the town of Caesarea. And the Lord is going to send Peter on a mission to open up the kingdom to Gentiles. You see, in Caesarea, there was stationed a centurion of the Italian cohort who was named Cornelius. And the centurions, if you know anything about the Roman army, were the very backbone of the military. Cornelius himself was a God-fearing Gentile, both devout and generous to the Jews, but he was a Gentile and a Roman and a soldier. Three strikes. 
He was not one to whom the Jewish people would naturally welcome or extend a welcome. So how will Peter, as one of the apostles, deal with such racial discrimination in the ancient world? Because that's what it was. In our day, I think it's taken for granted that the gospel is to be proclaimed throughout the whole world, but it was not always so. In the first century, the Christian mission to the Gentiles posed a big problem. Some agreed to include them, but only if they would submit to circumcision and, in effect, become Jews. To be included in the household of God, they would have to follow the kosher laws and the dietary restrictions and the Jewish calendar. And this is one of the reasons why Peter's visit to Cornelius would draw such criticism. What are you doing? Because the inclusion of the Gentiles was not an easy transition for Jewish Christians. Racial discrimination, it's nothing new under the sun. Placing believing Gentiles on equal footing with believing Jews was absolutely stunning. For thousands of years, think of it, the people of God were identified by certain marks and certain practices. And all of a sudden, you're telling me these are to be discarded? Circumcision? Yes, exactly. The New Covenant Church would be open to believers from every nation under earth. Not under earth, on the earth. And it was a mystery. It was a glorious mystery revealed by God in the New Testament, but this truth would sink in slowly, and God would patiently lead his church to embrace it. And this passage as a whole, the whole of chapter 10, reveals an important step in the transition. Luke records the events surrounding the conversion of Cornelius and his household. And in this passage, the first eight verses, he introduces us to Cornelius, lays the groundwork for the rest of the text. So he begins the narrative by giving us a biographical sketch of the Roman centurion. As you know, a centurion is in command of a hundred men. Six centurions were assigned to a cohort Ten cohorts made a legion, which was consisting of 6,000 men. He was a non-commissioned officer, which simply means he came up through the ranks. He earned his stripes. He was responsible for training the soldiers and for enforcing discipline. Not an easy thing. He drilled his men. He inspected their arms, their food, their clothing. He commanded them. And because centurions were seasoned Soldiers, they were often rude and uncivilized. But in the case of Cornelius, both he and his family were devout. Interesting. He had a large house, many servants, had some measure of prestige, and his religion apparently in his eyes was not simply a personal matter. He taught his household how to worship and serve God. One of those who attended him is described in verse 7 as a devout soldier. So his godliness was unusual, it was influential, and it was very well known. Now the Italian cohort was composed of volunteer Roman soldiers who were born in Italy. A lot of times other cohorts were comprised of soldiers drawn from the provinces. Not this one. 
This was the Italian cohort. Their fidelity, because they were born in Italy, would be far more certain. Because these were the ones who functioned as the Roman governor's personal guard. They protected him. And so Cornelius is one of six who reported directly to the governor. And Caesarea, very important post, because it was the provincial capital where the Roman governor lived. It was predominantly Gentile, though there was a large Jewish minority, which meant that riots would often take place between the Jews and the Gentiles. And Governor Felix, you've heard of him, treated the Jews very harshly. So sadly, but not surprisingly, there was friction between these two groups. And Cornelius is mentioned by name as if he is well known to the early Christians. I don't know. Perhaps he was famous for his military exploits. Certainly he was famous for his piety and his generosity. He was a good man. And it proves, I think, as a side note, that a military career is not inconsistent with the Christian faith. He's a good man. And along with his household, he feared and he worshipped and he prayed to the living God. Because at some point in his life, he'd been acquainted with the Jewish faith. Somewhere. In God's providence, he'd been exposed to the Holy Scriptures. And he obviously attended the Sabbath worship services in the synagogue. And he observed the day of rest. He did keep the dietary laws. He wasn't yet circumcised, but he was in close sympathy with the biblical faith. And like, the, like Lydia, the seller of purple, Cornelius was considered a God-fearer. And I think it's interesting that the Gentile to whom the gospel came first was a Roman soldier. He wasn't a philosopher. He wasn't a teacher. He wasn't a scholar or even a Gentile priest. He was a soldier. And on the one hand, this was rare because Roman legions were not known for their piety. On the other hand, this man would be free from the opinions and the prejudices of the Roman intellectuals. Didn't Paul say, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Some of you were powerful. Think of it, fishermen and tax collectors and prostitutes and soldiers and common people coming into the church because God has, not, God has not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith. He has done so, and they are heirs of the kingdom. God often chooses people who are of no reputation in the world, doesn't he? Fewer temptations, fewer occasions of falling into pride, greater opportunities for virtue, more likely to embrace the gospel. Jesus' disciples were comprised largely of the poor and the outcasts and the sinners. And Cornelius was a Roman officer who sincerely embraced Christianity. The bottom line is that God had given him a new heart and he stood out among his peers. So about three o'clock in the afternoon, Cornelius is praying and he's startled and terrified by an angelic vision. That time of day was one of the stated hours of prayer. 
And when the angel appeared, Cornelius himself had been engaged in prayer, according to verse 30. And isn't it remarkable that the angel could be seen and heard? That wasn't typical. You know, the Bible teaches that there is an invisible world filled with spiritual beings, both good and bad. The Sadducees didn't believe in angels or spirits or the resurrection, and they were ancient materialists who denied the supernatural. But scripture teaches, God tells us that there are angels and that there are demons and that they are involved in our experience. That's truth. Hebrews 13, the elder read this morning, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Why? Well, here's the reason that he gives us. Because thereby some have entertained angels unawares. We don't even know. Normally humans cannot see those who inhabit the spiritual realm, only on rare occasions like this, or at times we don't even know. On this occasion, Cornelius was able to see and to hear the angel from heaven, and it seems clear to me that at some point he had been instructed about spirits. The Sadducees hadn't gotten a hold of him yet. And when the angel appeared, Cornelius had a framework in which to understand what was going on. He knew enough about spiritual things to say, what is it, Lord? It seems clear that he had been taught something about angels. Because we're told in our catechism that God created all the angels' spirits, immortal, holy, excelling in knowledge, mighty in power. Why? To execute his commandments to praise his name, angels. They belong to that vast heavenly host that lives before the living God. And Cornelius was frightened, not because he was ignorant, but because of the angel's splendor. I cannot think of an angelic appearance in scripture that was without splendor. These are glorious beings. There are some of those angels who stand in the very presence of God. Jesus says, in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And if you think Moses' face shined from his time spent in the tabernacle, what about the angels from heaven? Notice how the angel called Cornelius by name. It wasn't generic. He didn't say something like, you, sir, or listen to me, or hey, you. He called him by name because he knew and was well acquainted with this man. In fact, he was one of the ministering spirits sent out to serve the heirs of salvation. And Cornelius says, what is it, Lord? Because he knew that at that moment he had to deal with the living God. Most likely since arriving in Palestine, he had heard about the life and death of Jesus Luke tells us that Philip reached Caesarea after an itinerant gospel ministry, and it's not hard to believe that Philip proclaimed the gospel of Christ in Caesarea before he got there. So Cornelius and his household knew the details of the crucifixion. In verse 37, if you go down the page, you'll see Peter says to him, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. He knew the details. 
Christ's baptism, his ministry, his miracles, his death on the cross. He had heard about it. What he may not have understood was that Jesus rose from the dead. And Peter would explain the resurrection of Christ, the one who will judge the living and the dead. And as he would explain these things later on in verse 44, the Holy Spirit would fall upon them. And so the angel tells Cornelius here to send for Peter. The centurion obeys the angelic message. He sends three men to fetch the apostle. And his obedience was an expression of faith. Isn't that incredible? I think one of the things this teaches us is that we need to learn that God has his people in places where we might think he would, where we might not think he would. To the Jews, a Roman centurion was part of the abomination of desolation. That's how they viewed it. Ever since the legions had conquered and occupied Palestine, there had been deep tension between them. And nobody would have thought for a moment that a Roman centurion would be godly. And yet we get a glimpse of the Roman brutality on the count of Jesus' suffering. This is what Roman centurions were like. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And as he prayed this morning, they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe and they thrust a crown of thorns on his head. They spit on him and struck his head with the reed scepter that they had given to him. They ridiculed him and mocked him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And of course, Jesus suffered all of that on behalf of us. And it was cruel and inhuman punishment. And these men were like animals. Psalm 22. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. He's describing the suffering that he would suffer. So Roman soldiers in those days were, for the most part, morally corrupt. And yet here was this man, this Cornelius, serving God and living an honest life among his peers. He was neither an idolater nor a hedonist like most of the Gentile world. He was a devout monotheist. Cornelius worshipped the true and living God. Somehow he believed in one creator who made the heavens and the earth. And he had come to believe in Yahweh. I think it shows that God's grace is sufficient in the most unlikely places, Chiba. He can reach the most difficult souls in the most difficult places. He is able to bring sinners to Jesus Christ against all odds. Many of you know of Rosaria Butterfield. This is how she describes herself. As a leftist lesbian professor, I despised Christians. (laughs) Then somehow I became one. You see, she was professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University. And in 1997, she published an article in a local newspaper criticizing promise keepers. 
She was going to do a piece on Christianity. She picked them as a target. Ken Smith, local Presbyterian pastor, responds to her with a letter, just simply asking her some questions. How do you know this is true? Where do you get your information? And Ken and his wife, Floyd Smith, invited her to dinner, and they began to regularly share meals and have conversations, and Rosaria says that she started to read the Bible as a result, and she was converted after two years. And now today, she's a pastor's wife, the mother of four children, and she attends a very conservative Presbyterian church. (laughs) It's incredible. And I'm convinced that if Cornelius could stand here today, he would testify that he too has an amazing story of conversion. Here was this seasoned, hardened, battle-tested soldier who came to Christ. And we don't know how, but in the providence of God, somehow he was converted. And I'm looking forward to having a conversation with him when we get to heaven. I really want to talk to him. He feared the Lord. He revered the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and his religious influence impacted his entire family. So I don't think we should consider any place or any soul outside the reach of God's grace Look at Saul of Tarsus. Look at Augustine, the church father. Look at Kim Dae-jung, past president of South Korea. An amazing conversion. Look at Werner von Braun, the German engineer who's considered the father of rocket science. Amazing conversion. Who would have thought? Don't stop praying. Be prepared to engage in conversation. Trust in the Lord who is able to draw sinners to belief in Jesus. We heard this morning amazing things of what he's doing in Japan, of all places. 0.24 of the population are Christian. That's less than a quarter of a percent. But God can do amazing things. Learn, secondly, that in the midst of Gentile darkness, this man was walking in biblical light. No reasonable citizen of Rome would have embraced the strange thing called Christianity. The Gentile world was dark and ignorant and devoid of gospel truth. And the biblical faith was hated in the world because of its exclusivity. There's no other way. Yet Cornelius embraced it. He believed the promises and forsaking his idols and avoiding superstition, he ordered his life well. He lived according to the rhythm ordained by God at the start. He laid aside his unbelief, his prejudices, his bad habits, and he walked in the light. John tells us in his first epistle that God is light, which means his moral perfection. And he's the source of illumination. Matthew said that in Galilee, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah when he says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That's Jesus. And that light shone in the heart of Cornelius just like it did in ours. And he began to live his life, not perfectly, but sincerely in conformity to the revealed will of God. Because John says, 
If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's the greatest blessing known to man. Walking in light is proof that you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus and that you begin to reflect the virtues of Jesus himself. Isn't that incredible? You love God and you love your neighbor and you long for heaven and you live for Christ and that's the outflow of a soul that's been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Let's consider for a minute, just very briefly, the outworking of his faith. Let's learn something from it. First of all, he feared God, which is at the beginning of wisdom. He had reverence for God, respect for his word, fear of offending him. It's not the fear of a slave, mind you. It's the reverence of a son. It doesn't bring about terror, but it delivers a person from it. It's the foundation of true wisdom. He feared God. Secondly, he instructed his household in the true religion, though it was held in contempt. He must have been the, the laughingstock of his peers. Can you imagine? But here was powerful proof of Cornelius' sincere devotion to God. He engaged his entire household in the worship of Yahweh so that at least outwardly, those in his house and those under his charge serve the Lord. You and I can't change their hearts, but we can try to guide their behavior. We cannot see the heart, but we can teach the mind and pray that God the Holy Spirit will ignite the logs that we put into the fireplace. Cornelius managed his house well. Thirdly, he was generous and charitable among everybody, especially the Jews. Hebrews 13, don't neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You and I, let's face it, we're prone to selfish thoughts and we're prone to neglect the poor. I'm convicted by that. God is especially pleased with that faith that leads to to sacrificial giving and brotherly love. Nowhere do we see this more clearly than in the life of Jesus himself. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And so in the imitation of Christ, Cornelius was generous. But then fourth, he was a man of prayer. He was a man of prayer. He didn't neglect the stated seasons of prayer, including three o'clock in the afternoon. And in prayer, he sought the Lord, and God had put that desire in his heart. Psalm 105, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. And as this passage proves, Cornelius didn't seek the Lord in vain. He'd been faithful in a little, and so Christ would give him much. An angel came to him. His was a well-rounded faith. He was a sincere, godly Christian centurion. And despite his Gentile background and upbringing, he sought the Lord. So know that the Lord gladly welcomes the one who seeks him in earnest. Elder Miller read this this morning from Proverbs 8, and it's a promise. It says, and this is Jesus speaking, the pre-incarnate wisdom, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. 
find me. Whoever seeks to know Jesus will most certainly find what they seek. No one ever sought the Lord in vain, ever. The desire is the fruit of God's love. Because as we heard this morning, we love because he first loved us. That's why we love. Not simply are we surrounded with mercies. Not simply did God make all the arrangements for our salvation. But he loved us by gliding sweetly into our souls and renewing our hearts. His spirit implanted the desire to know and to love him and to seek him. And the one who seeks him in sincerity with diligence will come to know him. That's a promise. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus said that to know him is eternal life. Isn't that incredible? If you seek him, you'll find him. And if you find him, you'll get eternal life, the greatest blessing of all. And you'll never seek him in vain. Cornelius was a a genuine believer. He'd been singled out by sovereign grace. He had knowledge of the inspired oracles of God, and he expected the coming Messiah. And the Holy Spirit had prepared him to receive the gospel of Jesus. So let's give thanks as I close for God's providence in spreading the gospel where it's needed. I think this text provides us with a backstory to the full inclusion of the Gentiles. And God had orchestrated events so that Cornelius could hear the gospel from Peter's lips. The same meticulous planning and providential care is at work in us and in them. From before the foundation of the world, God planned your conversion, my conversion, the conversion of the Japanese people. He foreordained the time, the means, the agents, and all the circumstances. And everything is prearranged by his infinite wisdom with painstaking detail and forethought. We should give thanks. You're not here by mistake. (laughs) You're not here by mistake. God planned for you to be here from before the foundation of the world. Therefore, we ought to give thanks and praise him because we'll do so eternally when we get there and see him face to face. May that be an encouragement to all of God's people today. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank and praise you for this remarkable story of Cornelius, this man that nobody would have expected to become a Christian. We thank you for his example. We thank you for the evidence we see in him and his family of your sovereign grace and pray that you will encourage us, not only in our own walk, but never to give up on anybody as long as there is breath in their lungs. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.